Welcome to episode 86 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert's studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and paper making masterclasses here in the studio and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Moreau Vandero, a visual artist of Greek origin who is living and working in California. Her formal training has a strong interdisciplinary character informed by studies in the visual arts, interaction design, literature, psychology, digital and computer technologies. Her work explores the process of transformation through installations of original photographic material, writings, and artist books. Her tools of choice are film cameras, gompi, a rare Japanese handmade paper, and platinum palladium printing. The setting of images and the visual vocabulary of abstract concepts such as grief, surrender, purification of intent, and transformation, reference symbols and archetypes from her Hellenic roots. The installation concepts reflect on fragility, impermanence, and vulnerability. Vandero's work is in private and public collections across the United States and Europe, including the Library of Congress, the Getty, Bibliothèque Nationale de Paris, the National Museum of Contemporary Art, in Athens, Greece. Enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Paper Talk, Maro Vandoru. We met many years ago in Portland uh, through paper. So I'm looking forward to talking about your journey with paper. Oh, I'm looking forward to to, to chatting with you about, you know, paper and art and uh, Yes, Portland, Oregon was a wonderful place and a wonderful time uh, in my life and in pivotal for my artistic development. Great. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk about that more. Um, so just talk briefly about where you grew up and how you came to paper. I know you had a whole other life before paper uh, and art. <laughs> yeah, that's that's correct. I I was born in Plaka, in the foothills of Acropolis, literally, mm. uh, in Athens, Greece. And I grew up there, and I went to school there. And at that time, there was absolutely uh, nothing to indicate uh, the turn and the focus, uh, the exclusive career focus on art and artist books and paper that I had for the past 20 years. Uh, At that time, uh, I had a very strong uh, academic and intellectual orientation. So I finished Pierce College that was, uh, that is an American university college with a double major in English literature and psychology. Then I did my master's in England and I came to the States as a Fulbright scholar to study developmental psychology uh, at Clark University. Okay, and Clark is where? In Worcester, Massachusetts, Okay, on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very famous school for psychology and so on and so forth. And shortly after I finished with my thesis, because I'm a little bit of a restless, you know, like you no know, creature, I had an increasing interest towards um, uh, computers and design and uh, I got another, you know, like a you know, degree in uh, computer, you know, like in you know, science. A long story short, I ended up uh, uh, with my husband on the East Coast in Florida, um, working uh, for IBM. I okay, was- and tell me what year this was, because this was kind of when computer science was newer, I'm guessing. Yeah. 
Uh, yes, that was in the 90s. 90s. 90, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at, at IBM, I was responsible for technical strategy and I was responsible for uh, designing a, a user interface so that we, in, we can interact with the computers using voice. And uh, voice commands are supposed to be typing the various, you know, like uh-huh. commands. And that uh, resulted in, in a couple of design uh, patterns. And overall, uh, it was, you know, very interesting, you know, like no work. But uh, then at the end of, uh, uh, it was 1999, something like that, uh, Milan, Milan is my husband, uh, we relocated to Phoenix, Arizona. And okay. at that time... Yes. I want to just ask a question about the patents sure. Were the, because sure. it's interesting. Was that, are those your patents or IBM's? IBM's patents under my name. Under your name. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That, that was parts of designing uh, the, the voice commands for interacting mm-hmm. with the computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Because that was part of my left analytical, you know, brain work. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, then when I was in, in uh, uh, when we were in Phoenix, I uh, got kind of, you know, restless again, because I really wanted to be um, more involved with the design and understand design better. And, and were I, you uh, still with IBM? Like, what brought you to No, Phoenix? I had left. Um, 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 Milan relocated, changed jobs, and uh, eventually, you know, I followed him, you know, yeah. in, in, in Phoenix. So uh, I went to Arizona State University. It has excellent programs in graphic design, in uh, printmaking, photography, and parts of, you know, like you know, book arts. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to immerse myself into understanding visual communication and typography and all of those, you know, like aspects. But I spent about a year and a half fully in the in the throes of it, and I really learned a lot. And it was truly pivotal because at that point I decided that I was done with the corporate world. Mm-hmm. I wanted to leave all of that behind. And uh, even though it was really scary uh, because I was leaving behind a very successful career uh, right. with a lot, yeah, it's peer recognition, you know, whatever. Um, and the road ahead, it was not clear whether I truly have what it takes to be an artist. I did not know. Mm-hmm. And I will just mention one moment that it was again kind of, you know, like a pivotal for me at Arizona State University. Here I am my very first semester uh, with very young, you know, like my students lost into designing a curve with pencil uh, on paper. Uh-huh. And legendary Robert Roy Kelly is uh, our professor. Mm. So all of a sudden, while I'm lost in my wood, he calls me and he goes, Moreau. So I'm wondering what the heck does he want from me now? <laughs> so I go there politely smiling. And he looks at me and he says, I really cannot make you out. I cannot understand you. People are either scientists or researchers or artists. You. <laughs> How could you stay away from art for so long? Uh-huh. And then I was really left speechless because of that moment at that time of uh, uh, self-doubt, insecurity, kind of, do, do I have, am I doing the right thing? Do I he have- validated that yeah. you were an artist. But I want to talk about that for a minute because um, my father was a scientist, a phys- nuclear physicist, and I felt like I never understood what he did. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he never understood what I did. And he passed away before we had a chance to talk about stuff like that. But um, I really see a similarity mm-hmm. in um, 
And not all artists are this way, but I know you do a lot of research and scientists mm -hmm. do research and they make discoveries and we make, as artists, we make discoveries. So I really feel it's not black and white. No, it is not black and white. And mm -hmm. what I have um, uh, come to understand because all of those things, you know, my love for literature has stayed with me. And that was from my very first studies at, at, at Rice College in literature. Mm -hmm. uh, and I write, I write essays, I write po poems. I mean, this is the more intuitive uh, part of me that expresses itself in a different way. But through art and artist books and typography design and installations and my evolution or my the way that things have unfolded uh, mm -hmm. in this you know like a journey everything has come together mm -hmm. because everything and all that i learned about computers helped me tremendously when i needed to do platinum printing mm -hmm. and i needed to uh, have digital negatives because platinum printing requires it is contact printing. There is no enlarger. We need to have an image, uh, a negative the size of the final image. That means unless you're using some large format, you know, like, you know, cameras, eight by 10 or whatever that yield these very large negatives, you need to enlarge your negative. And I usually work with medium format, you know, film cameras that have a small negative, two and a half by two and a half. Right. Let's let's back up just a little bit and tell me how did you get into photography, and um, what did that start during the studies at Arizona? That or? that start during the Arizona study uh, Arizona studies at Arizona study Arizona State University. What I discovered at that time were a couple of things. I discovered that I love typography. Mm -hmm. I dis I realized that I really love um, uh, book design mm -hmm. and I really love paper mm -hmm. passionately. Mm -hmm. uh, the paper is an integral component for the emotional and the aesthetic interpretation of the content, whether it is uh, type or whether it is images, whatever it is. And I became consciously aware of that and that has stayed with me. And the other thing that I also um, uh, discovered there was that in the black and white photography class that I took as means of honing my understanding of composition, I hated printing on RC coated paper. I mm. absolutely hated it. It is not that I could not, I, I could not tolerate it because it felt so plasticky to me and the image was st staying on top of the paper. And with my subsequent studies with the alternative photographic processes, when you're coating the paper, the image sinks into the fibers of the paper, becomes one with the paper. Right. And that turned out to be very important for me in all of my subsequent, you know, like no work. Right. So so, so you were learning photography and printing on coated papers. And how did you get to the uncoated and the alternative? How did you find the other papers? Yeah. <laughs> because I cannot do things the way <laughs> that normally uh, platinum printers or other printers do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, fragility, vulnerability, and translucency uh, seemed to be quite important to me mm -hmm. uh, because my very first um, platinum prints, everybody's printing all, all of the same platinum printers, you know, print on very well behaved, uh, specifically made for platinum printing, printmaking papers that they are, I don't know, 90 grams per square meter, 130, or even, you know, thicker, whatever. I wanted the thin, translucent, mm -hmm. transparent paper. Mm -hmm. And I became aware of it um, because I, I had collected all of the photographic material from uh, the first part of 
a long-term project that I'm working on, that it is unfolding as a trilogy in two parts. So, and two parts are completed. So for this first part, I wanted to print uh, the fragmented light. I wanted to print my images on extremely thin paper. Mm -hmm. So it took me about a year and a half after I had all of the material, testing papers, and uh, somehow finishing, fine-tuning the process of platinum printing. And when I say, you know, like not testing the papers, I wanted the very thin translucent paper because exactly it has a translucency, it has the fragility, but at the same time, I wanted a classical timeless uh, paper that can also withstand the rigors of platinum printing. Because in all of these processes, you end up having the paper for half an hour or 45 minutes in various trays and liquids. Right. So yes, it needs to be supported when you transfer it from tray to tray, but nonetheless, um, it needs to be able to withstand all of this water and the chemicals and not dissolve in front of your eyes. So Washi and Kubota Sun and his Sekishu Torinoko Gambi uh, became my very favorite uh, paper for many years. I printed Fragmented Light, which is about uh, 18 platinum prints. And I printed, you know, Vertical Time, the installation, that was another 22 prints. And I also print the smaller, a sm in a smaller format, a subset uh, of them for my first artist book, uh, Persephonia. Okay, and um, yeah, we'll we'll put links to these projects. They're all sure. documented on your website if people mm -hmm. want to look into detail. But um, so, where were you getting the paper from? Hiromi paper. Hiromi Hiromi okay. paper was has been absolutely wonderful mm -hmm. for everything. Washi uh, Hiromi is my go-to person, and she was the one who uh, coordinated uh, with Kubota-san my visit to Japan in 2011 okay. because I absolutely wanted to go there and show him what, what it is that I'm doing with his paper. Uh -huh. So uh, it, it was a wonderful visit. He speaks not a word of English. I do not speak a word of Japanese. We had an official translator who was struggling the whole time, but somehow we had a wonderful visit. Oh, wow. And uh, so uh, Hiromi carries his paper. Is that yes. right? So you're yes. getting yes. it and yeah. you, you just really wanted to meet the maker and absolutely. show him what you were doing with. Ab ab yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It was necessary. And uh, it was, uh, it was actually deeply moving because Kubota-san mm -hmm. is really um, dedicated to the preservation of, and the continuation of, of these traditions. His father was uh, um, a part of, you know, the distinguished uh, the living treasures, you know, okay, of, of, right. of, of, of Japan. And he, not only he, he's training other, you know, like, you know, artisans, and he was even going twice a week to a nearby prison, mm. also training prisoners in the art of, you know, like Nawashi. Oh. And he, yeah, and he's, he's a wonderful person. And uh, it, it was a beautiful visit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. Um, okay, and so tell me, just give me the overarching um, concept behind your trilogy that you mentioned. Trilogy uh, it's supposed to be unfolding in three parts, as the, the etymology of the name implies. Uh, it documents a personal journey of a very, very profound transformation. Uh, fragmented Light focuses on the realization that at some point in our lives, we stop and we look back at the decisions that we made earlier on in our lives. Mm -hmm. And we evaluate. And it is at that point that 
she's looking back and wondering, why did I leave? Why did I leave behind my language, the light? Mm. And she is in on the cusp of, of an irrevocable transformation. There is no going back. And, and when it, you say she, are you referring to she, like all she's or a particular character? It, it, it is, I think it is all of us mm-hmm. she's. Okay. Uh, of course, I started with, you know, personal experiences, but mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. it transcends uh, what's happening, mm-hmm. transcends me. Mm-hmm. So the first part, the fragmented light stops exactly with the realization I'm on a cusp of an irrevocable transformation. There is no going back. Mm-hmm. And it's not clear what's ahead. And it's rather scary. And um, how is that done? Through imagery and mm-hmm. text? Mm-hmm. Primarily through images, a series of about 20 platinum uh, prints that they were shown in, in, in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were shown in uh, Washington, D.C. They were shown in Belgrade. And mm-hmm. actually, the first show was uh, in, uh, in Athens in the spring of 2008. Okay. It was an installation. Mm-hmm. And for that installation and for the subsequent installations, I'm very particular. I refuse, like all... Uh, you know, like the majority of platinum printers to put uh, my work uh, behind glass and in frames. So I have devised a system that uh, uh, the platinum print is stitched on a parent sheet with silk threads. And then at the very top um, with magnets, there is uh, a thin plexiglass uh, rod. And that road gets to hang from the ceiling with silk threads. Mm-hmm. So in this way, when you're walking by, uh, the platinum prints come alive because mm-hmm. they flutter, they move, they're so light. Right. And this is an element that it was very important, you know, like for me. Right. And the parent sheet is there because the paper would just be too thin and move too much? Or... Um, or does it help with the image, viewing the it, image? It, it, it helps with the image. I think it helps tremendously all of the white that mm-hmm. uh, exists around the image, the way that the parent sheet frames the image. Um, uh, plus, um, the, usually my images are maybe 10 by 10 or, uh, I don't know, 11 by, by, by 14. I cannot easily print on such a thin paper larger uh, than that. So it helps to print them at that size and then have them mounted on the parent sheet, but simply with silk threads at the very top and then have the whole uh, piece kind of, you know, free and flattering and responding to movement. Right. Wow. Beautiful. Okay, so just uh, with the timeline, then you said you spent a year and a half at Arizona State. So, mm-hmm. did you get a degree, or you just no, no, I did uh, okay. no, no. I was just taking the classes. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate because I I convinced them to let me take a full lot of design classes with second and third year, you know, oh, like okay. you know, all you know, like my students, and I took a lot of classes with visual communication, typography. Uh, design, it was artist books, letterpress printing, uh, photography. Yeah, it was for a year and a half. It was wonderful. It was. And, and, and then it was Portland. Then you moved to Portland. Okay. Yeah. Moved to Portland and it was Oregon college of art and craft. And at the same time for a full year, I had the opportunity to be the assistant of master photographer printer Russell Dodd, who was uh-huh. in Portland. Okay. So that was also uh, solidified my love, you know, for paper, for ink, and mm-hmm. for everything tactile and wonderful. Mm-hmm. And were you, what were you doing at the Oregon College of Art and Craft? 
Did that relate to him or that was separate? No, that was yeah. separate. Yeah. Uh, at Oregon College of Oregon, primarily, I continued uh, with, my, with my studies okay. in alternative photographic processes. And also I had, uh, I, I delved into the newly emerging at the time uh, digital negatives, you know, for contact, you know, like you no know, printing. So that took a few years of studies. Right. So um, I'm curious about your studio now. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about the palladium printing process. Do you do that in your own space? Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 In my own space, I need to have uh, the way that it works with, uh, with this alternative photographic processes and platinum or palladium printing. Uh, you need to make uh, the, the paper photosensitive. Mm-hmm. And you do that by coating it with a special you know, uh, solution of uh, chemicals. And then you, uh, the paper needs to dry in a totally dark you know, like, no, uh, place. At the same time, you should have developed uh, a negative uh, and have printed a negative, which is going to be the size of your final image because there is no enlarger you know, involved mm-hmm. into this process. Mm-hmm. And when the paper is, is dry, you put it together with a negative and you put the two of them together in a very special, you know, like a frame that has very strong springs on the back to keep good contact between the negative and the paper. And you expose it into some uh, form of ultraviolet light for a period of time that you have predetermined. Right. In my case, it was about, you know, eight minutes. I had a special uh, unit with UV lights that Russell, Russell Dodd was kind enough to build for me. Mm. And uh, then after you expose uh, the, the paper, you take it into the dark room, you put it into uh, a dry tray and you pour uh, the platinum or palladium solution all at one. Mm. And then it is a real magic because at that point you see fully developed the image mm. and it is really, really beautiful mm. because the platinum palladium, you know, process has a very, very long, beautiful range of tonality and it has tremendous archival value because it can last on the paper for as long as the paper that it is printed on for hundreds of years. It does not have the issues of silver, silver printed images that uh, they need somehow to be uh, other, you know, like treated with gold or something to, to stabilize. It is a noble, it yeah. is a noble metal and very, you know, like, you know, very stable. Yeah, yeah. And, and then after the developer, you move it through successive, you know, clearing baths and then for the final bath uh, of, you know, water for a period of time. And I used to um, have my images dry face down flat on pieces of plexiglass or, uh, or glass. And when the paper drives, it has lost its uh, absolute pristine uh, flatness. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, this is the kind of thing that I find extremely interesting because mm-hmm. every platinum print, it is going to reflect something of the nature of the paper that it was printed on for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a very organic feeling to that. So there are classicist um, platinum printers that the, that the fact that the, the, the paper dries and it's not completely flat may drive them crazy because it is not flat. Right. So even though you're drying it on the plexiglass, does that make it flatter or no? It's going to be flatter, but mm-hmm. it's going to have some kind of uh, 
let's say, flutter, mm-hmm. F-L-U-T-T-E-R, you know, kind of, flutter, not, yeah. not wrinkles. It's going to have something. It is not as pristine as when I started, you know, right. putting it. Right. But this is more part of the wabi-sabi uh, Japanese philosophy mm-hmm. and accepting and respecting the nature of the materials that you are working with. Uh, because I think informally I might have told you that paper for me has been one of my greatest teachers. Mm-hmm. It has taught me not only patience, but also humility and has taught me that even though I might be seeking perfection in my work, at the same time, I'm embracing and loving the imperfection of uh, the natural materials that I'm working with. Right. And I, this makes me want to hear a little bit about um, what you're thinking from the original image that you saw through the the photo you took, but you're only seeing the negative and then, right. And then what happens on the other end (laughs) when it comes out on paper and I can see why it took a year and a half to find the right paper. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It it took a year and a half and uh, it is a long process because um, for me, it, I need to, and it's again, a, it's a long process and a balancing act. Um, the technical aspect is that I may have decided on uh, the site uh, where I'm going to photograph, like for fragmented light, I, I was going to collect images from the ancient cemetery of Keramikos, which is something a little bit functionally equivalent to uh, to our, our Arlington, uh, because those who had died defending Athens had the honor of being buried there. Okay. But there, the very rich families also had the personal, you know, like, you know, graves. And it is a place of tremendous magic and power because also every four years, the procession towards the Acropolis uh, the Parthenon would start from there. And it is an absolutely magical place. Mm-hmm. So, include a little bit about the cameras you're using when you're telling me this too. Well, it's, it is all related because mm-hmm. it's not simply the year and a half that after I had the material that um, uh, it took me to find the right paper in the process. But even before that, for several years, every time that I would come to Athens, I would go to Keramikos and try to photograph. When I'm, I am in an archaeological site or in a museum and I'm trying to photograph, I'm trying to capture something that it is not visible. I'm trying to capture something of the, of the, of the energy uh, of the presence of of uh, of the place. Otherwise, I'm on a slippery slope. These places in Athens, in Greece, have been photographed by so many famous, you know, photographers. Mm-hmm. It it is it is it would be absolutely boring to reproduce something that has been photographed successfully so many times. So, I used. Every I experimented with every camera that you can imagine, from digital cameras when it was trendy and early on, mm-hmm. to Holgas, and finally to Rolex Flex that I have uh, settled on. These are the medium format, you know, like you know, cameras, and I really love them because they are masterpieces in terms of engineering. It is a beautiful piece of analog equipment that when you take it into your hands, you slow down. Mm. Using film, you only have 12 exposures. You have to make everyone count. Mm -hmm. You have to concentrate on the composition. You have to forget 
the, the, the noise of the city, you know, people that might be around you, you just look down at the glass and you concentrate. And it is a different way of, you know, like not working. Right. And I love, uh, especially the Rolleiflex, uh, I love the, the signature of the, what I would say, old glass that might have uh, some imperfections compared to contemporary um, lenses of, um, for our digital cameras that might be almost clinically perfect mm-hmm. and lack some of the personality of the old glass. And I love to shoot, you know, totally wide open uh, with a very shallow depth of field. Mm-hmm. And this is how I feel that um, sometimes uh, the marble and the statues come to life in front of my eyes. Yeah, I can. I like getting chills. You can sort of feel it coming into the camera. Wow. Hey, listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to let you know that you can pre-order a copy of The Art of Papercraft now. And if you're listening to this after February 15th, 2022, it is available through my website or wherever fine books are sold. I've compiled a collection of 40 unique projects in this book, designed by paper artists from around the world, each using just one sheet of paper. Combining decorative paper techniques like marbling, stamping, and stenciling with dimensional techniques like origami, cutting, folding, quilling, stretching, weaving, and pop-ups, The Art of Papercraft offers a rich variety of projects that will delight crafters, artists, and designers alike, including paper votive lights, pop-up cards, folded paper gift boxes, and envelopes, woven paper wall hangings, miniature one-sheet books, and much more. If you'd like an autographed copy, you can order that directly from me at HelenHebertStudio.com. And you can also find the book wherever fine books are sold. Now back to our conversation. So you spend a fair amount of time in Greece. Yep. And um, do you have a personal connection to the places that you're photographing or just... Um. That's a very interesting question because when I was photographing in Kiranikos, not not all at at the end, you know, the director of the archaeological site, I've become part of the family. I was uh-huh. there over a period of years with a different camera into my hands until I was, you know, happy. And I remember it was 2004, and the Olympics were going to take place in Athens, and some of the areas were corded off uh, with, with ropes uh, so that they are protected from the hordes of tourists. Nonetheless, I had, you know, like, you know, carte blanche. I could go anywhere. Mm. I could uh, step over the ropes. I could sit there for hours and dream until I could feel that I can take, you know, the right shot. So... Keramikos was a very, very special place for me. But the choice of the place uh, is a lot of times dictated but by what comes next into uh, this unfolding of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Because when I finished the fragmented light, which was the first part, and I wanted to move into the second part that explores the actual process of transformation, the stages of transformation, you are thrown completely into it. Not only there is no going back, but you are living through it and you are trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked for Persephone. Persephone um, was, um, is an archetypal figure, is not a historical figure. Uh, she was abducted by uh, Hades, uh, the lord of the underworld, and then she was tricked into uh, eating some pomegranate, you know, like you know, seeds, so that she stays with him for a period of time. But then she returns to her mother, and her mother was 
Dimitra or Demeter, and she was responsible for spring and for the harvest and for everything that grows. And together with her mother, uh, she becomes co-initiator to the most sacred of mysteries, mm. uh, the mysteries of Ellipsis. Now, Persephone emerged for me as the archetype of change and transformation. And how she, like a lot of us women, are trying to hold in balance the various roles that we have in our life. Mm -hmm. She's a daughter and she's a wife and she's a young girl who becomes a bride and then a wife. She becomes extremely powerful in judging the souls of the departed ones. Mm -hmm. But then she returns up on earth and she's no longer the little girl. Now she's an equal and works along with her mother uh, in the most sacred of mysteries. So she became a, not as an academic archetype that I read about, but something that I felt very close to. So I went to some places where I thought I could find her presence or feel her presence mm. for photographing the second part of you know, the trilogy. I could not find her in Athens. I could not find her in Keramikos. I could not find her in nearby Ellipses. And then the director of, of the Museum of the Keramikos, she says, you have to go to the Oracle of the Dead. Mm -hmm. And that was um, a very important uh, site about the 400 kilometers northwest from Athens that people who had lost uh, beloved persons would go and try to communicate uh, with the souls of the dead, the dead you know, like, no people. This is supposed to be the entry into the underground palace of Hades and Persephone. Mm. This is the place where five rivers, one of which is underground, come together. Mm. So this is another, you know, like a powerful place. Right. So she says, you have to go there. You're not uh -huh. going to find her here in Keramikos. So here I am, living for the Oracle of the Dead, living for Preveza. And I go there and I'm staying uh, for a few days in the house of one of the guards of the archaeological site as a guest. And during the day, I descend to this chamber that it is about 15 feet by 45 feet. It has 15 arches carved into the rock that render the place intentionally unequoic. There is no echo. Ah. All you can hear is your heartbeat. Huh. That's it. Wow. And it is dark. Right. There is a glimmer of light uh, down on, on, on the floor. There are rocks, you know, there is wetness. And here I am, I'm supposed to be photographing, you know, Persephone or whatever. And I'm taking out my light meter and my light meter cannot measure any fragments of light there. Mm. It's not sufficient. And I have never worked under conditions like this. So I have absolutely no idea what to do. So here I am like a, a lunatic talking to Persephone <laughs> saying, listen, if you want me to talk about you, you know, to other people, you really need to help here. Right. I, have no, I have no idea what I'm doing. And uh, um, I put down my backpack at the end of, of this chamber and I put uh, the, the Rolleiflex on top of my backpack and I have it wide open and I put the timer and then I just walk towards the end of the chamber because there is this huge crack on the wall, which is, I presume, it is the entry into the un underworld. And right. all the time I'm thinking, if, my, if I lose my balance now, <laughs> I'm going to break my neck. Yeah. <laughs> so somehow the timer goes off. I don't know. I repeated that maybe two or three times. Mm -hmm. And then I returned to Athens. 
absolutely convinced that I need to have my head examined, uh -huh. that nothing can be possibly be written on the film under these circumstances. And yet it was. Mm. And that became part of um, the installation in Portland, in Portland, Oregon, at the Murdoch you know, collections. And the images were presented uh, as a perfect uh, secret, you know, like in a circle that you needed to step into. To right, right. Wow. Okay, so you did that installation, but you also have an artist book called Persephone's Chamber. Yes, yes. And let's uh, talk about sort of the workflow and how you produce an artist book. Uh, I decided after a, a vertical time um, that given the ephemeral nature of all of installations that I wanted a more intimate object of contemplation, which is what the book is. Plus, there the were poems, there were writings that they wanted to incorporate that mm -hmm. I could not do that easily in an installation. So at, at, at that point, usually in all of my, in all of my artist books, there is, an, there is an initial idea and it is connected uh, uh, somehow to this larger body of work. Mm -hmm. It is connected back uh, to my roots, that they are part of my Hellenic uh, culture. And I will use symbols and archetypes as part of my sort of, you know, visual language. But when I have a book, when I have the design of a book in, in mind, then uh, the basic concept is going to dictate um, the format and the choice of the materials and all of the processes that they're going to be involved. Um, it is not aesthetics. It is concept-driven. Mm -hmm. So if I need to spend six months uh, studying in the library of the Archaeological Society in Athens, to find out about uh, of uh, the 50 gold Orphic uh, lamella sacred text of the Orphics, how many of those belong to women? So mm -hmm. I need to dive through all of the books. If I need to talk to archaeologists, if I need to talk to museum directors, to curators, whenever I need to talk to there is always um, a left brain analytical research component in all of my work, even if it may not show up too much, you know, right. or hardly at all at the end. But be, so there needs to be a solid theoretical uh, mm -hmm. background uh, in, of research regarding the particular, you know, like in a topic. And then that is going to dictate which paper I'm going to use and the dimensions of the book and, uh, you know, like you know, the, the, the choice of the type. Um, I, I do all of the typography design myself uh, always. So even and, if it, and, right. even if it ends up printed letterpress, which I do not do, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, um, I'm the one designing. Right. And uh, I know you used, I don't remember when we met exactly, but you used some of my papers for this book, Persephone's Chamber. Yes. Yes, I did. Um, I had um, your beautiful Abaca papers in three different ways. I had what I have baptized your wild Abaca. <laughs> right. You named it Wild Abaca. I named it the <laughs> Wild Abaca that I absolutely adore as the uh, front part of the folio. Then the bottom part of the folio was a medium in opacity of uh, Abaca. Mm -hmm. And within that folio, there the, the was with silk threads attached a palladium print. Now, I wanted uh, 
the wild abaca as a means of a preamble, gradual unfolding and moving towards, you know, like no damage. And then when you turn the folio, you still see a whisper of the image on the back before you proceed to the next, you know, like no page. Plus you had made some beautiful, beautiful, extremely thin uh, abaca. And on that, um, uh, Georgia Gelopoulos, who is a wonderful calligrapher in, um, in Victoria, in British mm-hmm. Columbia, we worked together for the design of the title and of three uh, very important words that there were central concepts, you know, to the book. Right. And she read that with um, palladium pigment on, on, on your paper. Right. And you have a beautiful video on your website, which we'll link to, of uh, paging through this book. Yeah. yeah. And just to describe the wild abaca, because some listeners work with abaca and might wonder what that is. I can't remember how I discovered this, but I do a lot of with shrinkage, mm-hmm. high shrinkage. Mm-hmm. So I beat mm-hmm. the abaca really fine. And um, I was air drying it and just mm-hmm. seeing how it looked. Then I decided to mist it with water and put it in my restraint dryer to flatten it a little bit. So it's got this really interesting texture because of the air drying Mm -hmm. little nubbies. And then when it gets restraint dried, um, there's some wrinkles and uh, just the decals are pretty wild um, because of this initial mm-hmm. air drying. So it's flatter, but it doesn't return to its original state. It's a, it's a new paper. Uh, yeah. And this is what's so wonderful about it because not two pieces of paper are right. know, identical. Right. Each one is, is, is unique. So it's, it's a very beautiful paper. Uh, I have come to uh, really love Abaca almost as much as I love Gumpy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But to be clear, you do your printing on the Gompi, not on the uh, Abaca. No, yeah. no, I'm doing so far. I've been doing my printing on on uh, platinum printing. Uh, however, for new work, it's, it's going to be mark making with white ink, and it is going to be on Abaca. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Um, we've got a few more minutes, but I want to I want to get to the book whispers because Mm -hmm. uh, another thing we share a love for is watermarks. Yeah. And I know you ended up working with Gangolf Ulbricht Mm -hmm. for that paper. And Mm -hmm. just tell me a little bit about that book. Again, this was a book that was absolutely concept driven Mm -hmm. in all of the choices that I made it. Um, I, I, I had an interest in, um, in the, in the writings to accompany uh, for the afterlife, um, those who had been initiated uh, into the Orphic uh, religion, uh, they would have a tiny little bit of you know, gold foil with very specific instructions as mm-hmm. to what to do. And most of these, uh, what's called lamella, are attributed to men, and I found one that was clearly belonging to a woman. And that led me into identifying at the end the lamella that belonged to six uh, women Orphic uh, mystics. Now, the challenge with that is that I really perceived this text as a whisper. So how do you give material form to a whisper? I did not want to use white ink on white paper. I did not want to have it blind printed, blind stamp printed. I wanted something different. And then it was the concept of a watermark and in a format that it is um, six by 18 almost mm-hmm. um, when the, the folio of the book is closed. And that means that when you pick up um, the page of the folio and you lift it up, then the text gets illuminated and Mm -hmm. it comes to life. Mm -hmm. And the rest of this time, it is just 
lurking, hiding within the right. fibers of, uh, of the paper. So the first volume of that book was presented exactly in this uh, way. I think Gangolf ended making about 2022 watermarks you know, for me. And how do you know the process he used for creating? So a watermark is like a raised area on the paper making mold that pokes up into the sheet of paper so that it looks, it's thinner where the watermark is. So you're, yeah. you're describing the text yeah. and yeah. thicker everywhere else. So that's yeah. how it becomes visible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, the, the process that he did was that I needed to, um, to give him, you know, like the, the digital files of the text. Mm -hmm. And then um, it is, I don't know if it is a process that it is close to screen printing. Um, there is a photosensitive emulsion that gets washed off, that it gets done directly on the mold itself. And then when it is washed off, what it is left is the text. And then you pour the fibers of the paper on top of it. And where there is um, this photosensitive material is going to be less of the material and it's going to be more translucent and will result into the watermark. Okay. But yeah, I do think it's a screen. It's a silk screen with a pretty open weave and... Mm -hmm. I've seen a little bit of, I haven't done you it see, myself. Now, yeah. the, the only thing that was an absolute heartbreak is that unlike other forms of printmaking, uh, you're not left with a plate even to look at because when he would finish uh, printing, making the folios for the edition, then he would need to scrape it off for the oh. new, for the new watermark uh, to, to be made. So... This is the only thing that I, I really wish I had uh, a plate right. of, of the text or of the garland. Yeah. But, uh, and again, uh, I explained to him, and it was in the choice of the fibers, uh, given that uh, it was referring to, to ancient uh, Greece, I felt very strongly that the only fiber could be flax. Mm. It, much that I love Abaca and Gumpy, it would have been inappropriate right. fibers to conceptually support the book. Mm -hmm. So he used linen. Right, right. Flax. Fitting, yeah. Yeah, and Gangolf Ulbricht has a website and he makes very amazing papers and collects molds and decals. Uh, I have never met him in person, but I've talked to him, interviewed him for an article for Hand Paper Making Magazine, and mm -hmm. he's worth looking up and mm -hmm. uh, seeing what he's done. Well, did you actually meet him or did you just work? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, uh, the first time I talked to him, uh, and he was really reluctant to take uh, <laughs> this, uh, this project, but then I found myself in Europe. And while we were in for a short visit in Prague, I took the train and okay. went to Berlin and met met with him. Yeah, and uh, the rest is really history. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's wonderful. Okay, uh, we need to wrap up, but I want you alluded to the white marks on paper. What are you working on now? I'm working on. Um, a visual interpretation of Sapho's poetry. Uh, Sapho was a lyric uh, poet that uh, from the island of Lesbos that lived in the seventh century uh, uh, BC. And uh, the interesting thing about her is not simply that she was, she was and remains tremendously influential, but out of the 10,000 presumed uh, uh, verses of her poetry that they were kept in nine volumes in the Library of Alexandria. Mm. Only about 650 lines, 192 fragments remain. And fragments, these are literally fragments. Mm -hmm. One or two words, a lot of times letters are missing and so on and so forth. Mm. 
So I, at the beginning of, 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 the, of our pandemic and lockdown, mm-hmm. I had an edition of some false poems that it, it was so wonderful. I started looking closer at her and wondering how I can capture and represent her work in a visual form. Uh, so I had to invent uh, a language of abstract minimalistic marks mm. and each one of her poems and fragments has a very unique visual uh, signature. No two of them are alike. And for the, this, I will use abaca paper and white ink for all of my mark making. So this is what I'm working on and hope to be able to present at Codex in, in April. Yeah, I hope to see you there. This is the Codex book fair where uh, people who make artist books show them off to yeah, yeah. special collections librarians and mm-hmm. university libraries. Mm-hmm. So um, how are you doing the mark making? With ink and uh, a ruler, uh, mm-hmm. ruling pen. Mm-hmm. I have tried every uh, everything imaginable. I mean, in terms of uh, technical pens and uh, calligraphic nibs and so on and so forth, I find that the ruling pen allows me to control the flow of the white ink and uh, uh, the thickness of the line right. most successfully, so that my marks are more consistent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay, and you had some recommendations I know people will be interested in. So um, mine didn't print out very well. I hope you can remember. Uh, so the chemicals for platinum palladium that's, printing you get. That's, that's Bostick and Sullivan, the area right. in New Mexico. Right. Uh, paper for Japanese washi paper, it's, it's always uh, Hiromi, Hiromi International. Right. Uh, then... Uh, I get abaca papers from you. Um, uh, I, I get other specialty, you know, like no papers. Gangolf for Ulbricht uh, made uh, the flux paper for whispers. Uh, Papeterice Normand made uh, the paper for the rafter. Uh, for Persephonia, um, the thicker, gumpy handmade paper does not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, simply, mm-hmm. yeah. Right, and then you've used parchment and vellum from... Yes, Coley's. Uh, Coley's in the UK. Right. Uh, Paul Wright is absolutely wonderful. Um, and he was able uh, to uh, thin uh, the manuscript quality vellum for me to one-tenth of a millimeter. Because this is what I wanted. Yeah. And I wanted white, perfect vellum, no veins, no yellow stains, absolutely nothing, impeccable. And thin like paper, one-tenth, one-fifteenth of a millimeter. And he did. So and which started. project did you use that in? I used that for Persephone's Chamber. Okay. And I used it for Whispers. Okay. And I'm absolutely in love. Mm. Uh, and then I also mentioned um, uh, Cornelison and Son in London mm-hmm. for all um, gold leaf and gilding calligraphic uh, material. They have a very wide uh, uh, selection of pigments of gold in all kinds of form, whether in a powder form or as a gold leaf of the highest quality. Uh, this has been the recommendation of George Angelopoulos, who is a professional calligrapher. Mm-hmm. And of course, she knows much better than, than I do those things. Yeah. Right. And then you work with uh, two binders. Yes. Oh. I work with Sandy uh, Tilcock, and you, you know her, you know, from yes. the time that she was in um, Portland, Oregon. And uh, she did the letterpress printing on my first two books, Persephonia and Thereafter. And now I'm working with um, Elizabeth Pelt, and she is wonderful because she's an extremely um, both skillful, competent, but also very sensitive uh, bookmaker. Uh, so 
we're on the same wavelength, which is yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And um, we never mentioned, let's just mention that you live in California now. Yeah, and I think I Lisa is closer to you. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Lisa is in, uh, in, the, in the North Bay, so we are close by. So that's very, that's very easy. That's very convenient. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been fantastic, Maro. Tell me uh, your web address so people can look. And by the way, all of these um, suppliers recommendations will be listed mm-hmm. on the webpage for this podcast. People can Excellent. go there at HelenHebertStudio.com and look up uh, this episode to find those links. Excellent. It's Atelier Vandaru. Atelier Vandaru. Yes. Dot yes. Com. Yes. Yeah, dot com. This is to go back to my European origins. Uh, the choice of the term atelier versus studio. Just right. to remember. So, and Vandaru is V A N D O R O U dot com, in case Perfect. anybody wants to go look that up right now and okay. not look at my website. Okay. okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on Paper Talk. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It, uh, we have known each other for a while now. Yeah. After a few years. Yes. It was fun. wonderful. Thank you. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here. And the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. The reason, the